At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am really thrilled to have with me in person today, a rare thing these days because so many of our podcast episodes are recorded over Zoom, but I have in person with me not only one of my closest friends in the world, uh, someone I went to medical school with, but a really highly accomplished palliative care doctor, Dr. Timothy Poor, Tim Poor. And Tim, as I said, is a palliative care doctor in Providence, Rhode Island, and we have actually collaborated recently on some education modules for some medical students talking about end-of-life decision-making and discussions. And Tim, of course, his whole career is around this. And so I thought it would be great. And I'm really thrilled that he agreed to come on the show. And we're going to talk about palliative care in the ICU. So Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start by just talking about you. Uh, Tell the audience a little bit about who you are, how you got where you are, what your path, uh, your career path looks like and what you do. Great. So currently, I'm a palliative care doctor at an organization called Hope Health in Providence, Rhode Island, which started out as a hospice organization and now sort of employs all the palliative care doctors that work at all the Brown hospitals in Providence. And so I do inpatient palliative care at Rhode Island Hospital and the Miriam Hospital, which are two sort of main hospitals in Providence. And that's pretty recent because I moved to Rhode Island to be closer to family. Prior to that, I was at UCSF for a number of years where I did medical school and residency and a chief residency and fellowship and worked in palliative care there doing both inpatient and outpatient palliative care over the years. Uh, And most recently before I left a few months ago was medical director of the inpatient palliative care service there. Great. So, you know, I think a lot of people probably know that as you did, one common path to being a palliative care physician is through internal medicine as you did and then a fellowship. Just out of curiosity, what are other ways? Uh, I know at least one person who did an anesthesia residency and then a palliative care fellowship. So yeah. that's one. Yeah. What, what are the others? We in our in the fellowship programs I've been involved in and then my colleagues, um, I've had people from psychiatry, people from family medicine, people from emergency medicine, uh, internal medicine, Family medicine are probably the most common, but again, emergency medicine and psychiatry are two others that are common as well. Um, and again, you can do it from anesthesia and other fields too, less common, but uh, many fields you can go through to become palliative care doc. Great. And do most people, once they become a palliative care trained phys- fellowship trained physician, solely as you do practice palliative care, or do people tend to split time between maybe the medicine wards and doing palliative care? Again, the person I know uh, used to at least spend some time as a, an attending physician in the ICU and then other weeks as a palliative care, leading a palliative care team. How Do you have a feel for how common it is to kind of dedicate your job solely to palliative care versus split time? You know, when I finished fellowship, I was one of the very few people that decided to just do palliative care. Most people, at least at UC San Francisco where I was, were still doing sort of inpatient attending on internal medicine or had their primary care clinic, and that's becoming less and less common. Most people that are doing palliative care now are just doing palliative care. There are still some that split their time, and uh, that's more common in some places than others. But I would say, at least in terms of my exposure, most people are doing solely palliative care when they finish fellowship. Great. So – we should probably define the term palliative care, uh, you know, as someone who works in the ITU, I'm around it all the time, obviously, as a palliative care doctor, you're around it all the time, but there may be people out there who aren't, you know, they've heard the term, but they may not know exactly what we mean. So when you say palliative care, what, is, what do you mean? What, what is the definition? So it's a great question. There are sort of a lot of definitions that are out there for palliative care, and uh, there are a few things to say about that. One, one that I like to use is put out by this organization called the Center for Advancement of Palliative Care, which is this wonderful organization that helps people start palliative care programs all over the country and build them up. And their definition of palliative care is specialized medical care for people living with serious illness and the type of care that is focused on providing relief from the symptoms and stress of illness with a goal to improve quality of life for both patients and their families. Uh, And so that's, that's really the definition that they have. I heard once at a conference a number of years ago, one of the sort of the luminaries in our field, Diane Meyer, who's at Mount Sinai, said sort of an elevator pitch for palliative care that 
it is, it's often hard for people to explain what palliative care is. And her elevator pitch was, we improve the quality of life of patients with serious illness. And that's sort of what we do. And I think it's important to note that nowhere in that definition does it, do we talk about dying or death, uh, and nor is hospice mentioned. I think there's often a tension between sort of differentiating hospice and palliative care because, you know, all of hospice is palliative care, but not all of palliative care is hospice. And so in an effort to sort of get the general public more comfortable with receiving palliative care, there's a lot of thought put into how we explain it and how we talk about it with colleagues and with patients and all that sort of stuff. And maybe later we'll get into sort of how you might describe palliative care to a patient who you're planning to consult palliative care on. But that's sort of the definitions that exist. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And, and I was actually going to ask you, and you beat me to it, about the kind of contrast between hospice care and palliative care. And I think you said it really well, that while if you are receiving hospice care, you are receiving palliative care. It is not true that palliative care is all hospice care. Um, so do you feel there has been some talk here about the fact that you know, maybe some patients, some populations, um, you know, the the idea of palliative care has become so synonymous with kind of end of life or mm. even, you know, helping with death kind of hospice that they've thought about changing the name of the consult service here. And instead of calling it a palliative care consult, calling it, you know, something else, I don't actually know what it would be, but is that a national, have you heard those conversations? Do you think there's any merit in that or not? It's a good question, and there's a lot of controversy around it. I think that there are a lot of people in the hospice world that feel like keeping them together. You know, the the um, fellowship you do and the boards you take are the, you know, hospice and palliative care. Both hospice and palliative care are included in that, and there's a lot of overlap, and there's a lot of that makes sense about that. And thinking about sort of how the public perceives palliative care and how do we get palliative care to more people and make people feel more comfortable with accessing palliative care. And so there's sort of kind of two camps that exist around how we should be using those terms and whether we should have leave them tied together or separated. Uh, I think that my position is just that it's important to be clear about what palliative care is and what hospice is and what those differences are, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I will say that, sorry, just one oh, more thing about yeah. the renaming of the service. At UCSF or in San Francisco, when they started the outpatient palliative care service, they very intentionally named it the Symptom Management Service. And that name is carried through to this day for that reason, to sort of make sure that people did not feel concerned about going because of the associations of palliative care and death. And I think there's a lot of work that's been done, and that is getting better, uh, but it's still definitely an issue. Interesting. Um so let me ask you about the ICU specifically. What is the value or, you know, what is the um, time when we might decide to get a palliative care consult um, in the ICU? What do we, as let's say, as the ICU team, most anesthesia providers, if they're in the ICU, are going to be there serving as an ICU physician? Hmm. What's the advantage? What, does it have, what does the palliative care team have to offer in that setting? And when would you recommend people think about getting a palliative care consult? Great question. So a few points to make on that. I think that the first thing to say is I think that a lot of ICU providers are very good at sort of providing primary palliative care, palliative care that is not necessarily in need of a specialty level of, of, of intervention. Uh, and I think that really, it's really important to think about at what point a case transitions into a point, just like you would think about with GI or cardiology, you know, you can manage a lot of those things. And eventually you say, you know what, I think I need an expert to come in and help with that. And uh, I co-wrote an article, I guess, a year ago now with one of my mentors, Steve Panelot, um, in the Annals of Internal Medicine about sort of when to consult palliative care. And one of the things we talk about there is to ask yourself the surprise question. And maybe a lot of your listeners know about this question saying, would I be surprised if my patient died within the next 12 months? And if the answer to that is no, then they might need a palliative care consult. And in the ICU, that's probably often the answer, right? Um, it would not be surprising if these patients died within the next 12 months. And so then once you answer no to that question, you want to sort of think about what the question is for palliative care. One thing you're thinking about is uncontrolled symptoms, right? And I think that especially, you know, in anesthesia, uh, there are a lot of people that are very good at managing pain and specialized in managing pain. And so that's not often where palliative care is the most helpful in the ICU, although sometimes they are uh, when there's not an anesthesia doc sort of overseeing that case. But then there's a lot of other symptoms that palliative care can help address, right? Dyspnea, uh, constipation, nausea depression, anxiety, those sorts of things. And so if those things come up that are difficult to manage for the primary team, that's a time when someone is seriously ill that you might want to bring in palliative care. 
The other things to think about are sort of psychological or psychosocial or spiritual distress. Most places do have support for those things on their palliative care team, although not everywhere does uh, have social workers and chaplains to sort of come in and help uh, patients and families in those contexts. But that's another thing you're thinking about when you're going to consult palliative care. And then lastly, again, you all do this all the time, I'm sure, is having goals of care conversations. And if you're having goals of care conversations and you're not making progress, right? There's family conflict, there's a big decision to make and no one's able to make a decision and care is stalled, right? Where you're not able to move the care forward, that's when you call palliative care to come in to sort of help with that. Yeah, I think those are all super valuable things that palliative care can provide. And I think the, the one we always think about is, you know, I think that final one is, we need to have an end of life discussion, you know, that usually I think triggers us to say, have we, have we talked to palliative care, right? That's mm -hmm. an obvious one. But I think the other ones you mentioned are equally valuable, but not always thought of. So, yeah. you know, the patient who may be having a lot of pain and therefore is on a lot of opiate medications and having a lot of constipation or the patient who is, you know, having a spiritual distress or, or how one would even figure that out. Or, you know, we often have the conversation about, the patient seems depressed. Do we think about starting them on a, an SSRI, for example? And we maybe, if we're struggling with that question, we might think about talking to psychiatry. I think we rarely think about talking to palliative care. And yet, you know, it's a great example of, of a service and a skill set that you all have. And I will say that sometimes it is, you know, in, in the case of depression or anxiety, sometimes it does make more sense to talk to psychiatry. And I think that the thing to do is just call palliative care and say, hey, this is the case that we have. This is what we're worried about. Does this make sense? Does this sound like somebody that would be benefit from your services? Should we call psychiatry? And having that conversation, I think, is a great, a great step to take. Yeah. I also find, and uh, I don't know if you agree with this, but that when we do have the palliative care service involved with patients in the ICU, they tend to serve in some ways as a really nice um, almost uh, networker or, or they help tie everything together. So we've got, you know, often we, and, and this may just be our fault, but we often are very focused on the physical stuff, right? The antibiotics and the pressors and the intubation and the ventilator. And, you know, we pay a lot of attention to that. And we've got other services, cardiology, ID, renal, right? We're focusing on that part of the body. And it, is really what I find is that the palliative care service can really do a nice job of kind of paying attention to all that, but then also bringing in in the the other stuff you mentioned that maybe we don't pay as much attention as we should. And again, it's not to the expense of the other stuff. It's kind of a really nice integration of everything that I think you all provide. Yeah, I think that one of the things we often do is sort of have that sort of 20,000 foot view, right? We go in, there's all these numbers and diagnoses and people. And, you know, what we do is what we want to strive to provide goal concordant care. And in order to provide goal concordant care, you really need to get to know someone and you need to get to know their family and what matters to them. And again, I think that a lot of providers are good at getting that information. Um, but in palliative care, we do that all the time and have a lot of tools that we use to do that. Uh, and I think that it can often help. You know, we often serve sort of as patient and family advocates, right? So that we can go to the various providers on the various team and say, this is what matters to this person. Let's think about this intervention in the context of what matters to this person. Uh, which, yeah, can often be very helpful in sort of moving care along in a direction that feels good to patients and families. Yeah. And I would say providers, you know, it is, yeah. Um, yeah. it is one thing I have really learned over the years of doing critical care is how often sometimes the care we're providing, not by no means all the time, but sometimes the care we're providing can be causing distress for the providers, yes. the nurses, the, uh, the doctors, anybody. So um, really, I think having a team that can help us recognize that, talk about it and think about whether what we're doing is, is what we should be doing is really helpful. Totally. And I will say that we are often consulted for that too, right? Provider distress. Uh, and whether that consult comes in like this patient and family are making terrible decisions and someone needs to convince them to change this decision and we come in to sort of understand that decision and then help providers understand why that decision is being made. And sometimes it changes and sometimes it doesn't to a provider calling and saying, I'm having a really hard time with this case. I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to handle this. Can you all come and help sort of navigate this for us, which is a totally appropriate reason to call too. That's great. So I know a lot of folks out there who work in ICUs would probably really appreciate um, having an idea from you about some tools, some best practices that you think clinicians in general can use when talking to patients and families who are facing difficult diagnoses, end-of-life care, um, you know, who are very sick. Obviously, there's 
only so much that you can give us in a few minutes <laughs> from your entire you know year of fellowship in this. But you know, what are some of the key things you think if people are dealing with very sick patients, end of life patients, you know, tools you recommend they use? Yes, and so I'm happy to sort of jump into specific tools and we can talk about those. But I think just to highlight a few things that I think of are particularly important when you're thinking about going into a room to have a hard conversation with a family. I think that there are sort of three things that I would love for everybody to take away. And one of those things is have a plan before you in the room, right? Have goals that you set for that, for that encounter. So you're gathering all the information you can, you're talking to the providers, you're inviting people there who have information that maybe you don't have or who the family might want there when you're having a conversation. Go in prepared with as much information and a plan and a goal whenever you can so that you can guide that conversation. Uh, I heard someone in palliative care say this once and it stuck with me that um, palliative care providers often have a reputation for being nice, right? Everyone's sort of nice. And I heard a palliative care doc say once, you know, that our job is not to be nice, our job is to be effective, you know, and I think that that that's very true. Um, not that you can't be nice when you're being effective, but really going in that room sort of with an objective. And, you know, sometimes that objective shifts in the middle of a conversation, but having that I think is a key point. I think the other thing to remember when you're having conversations is asking permission, asking permission to sort of share information. That's particularly important when you're talking about prognosis, right? I think that sometimes you have to deliver hard news and often in the context of that, you're talking about how much time you think someone has. And there are some people that want to hear that and some people really don't. And so I think it's important to ask permission throughout the conversation, but especially around that, which gives patients a sense of control, right? They are, they are actively participating in the progression of that conversation, and it just goes better uh, when you're doing that um, and respects sort of their autonomy and their ability to sort of navigate that conversation. So having a plan asking permission as you're going through the conversation. And the third thing that I'll stress, and again, there are many more things to think about, but these are sort of the top three that I can think about or that I think about, is responding to emotion. And we'll talk about that. Um, I often teach about sort of delivering difficult news or uh, having goals of care conversations. And the main thing I want the learners in those sessions to take away is responding to emotion. Because not only does it help a patient feel validated and heard and improve their experience in the context of often very terrible things happening. But it also, you can't really move the conversation forward until you do that. You can get stuck. And if you don't sort of honor and respond to that emotion, you're not going to go anywhere from there. And so having that tool and having that skill is hugely important and probably the most important thing that you can learn to do when you're having serious illness conversations with, with patients and their families. Yeah, all of those are so key. And, you know, I, I think sometimes people ask me when I tell them, you know, I think it's important to ask permission is they'll say, well, the family asked for this family meeting and now we're going into the family meeting. They obviously want to hear what we have to say. Why would we ask if we could tell them what they asked to hear? Mm. And I think that's kind of missing the point, right? What you said and what I think is right on is that it, it is people feel so out of control when because they are when they're in the medical setting. And even we I mean, I had a family member recently have surgery. And at my hospital, you know, I mean, I couldn't have been more in control. And yet still the, I, the amount of time where I just wasn't sure what was going on and where people were and why something wasn't happening. And, and I could call everybody and anybody, but, you know, so imagine being not having any medical background or any connections. And it's so hard, I think for people, in fact, it, I know it is for people. And so having any little modicum of control that we can give back, even if it's as simple as saying yes to the question, is it okay if I proceed in, even though we know, of course, they're going to say yes, is still giving them some control. Absolutely. And, you know, they don't know while they, while they want to sort of make progress or hear updates or make a plan or whatever it might be. There's so many things that get brought up in those meetings that, you know, that they may or may not be prepared for. And so before new things, especially hard things are brought up, letting them know or asking permission to sort of share information, I think is hugely important uh, to, to honor those, those patients and, and those families. Absolutely. All right. So those three things are really important to keep in mind. Do you want to go through some of the tools that you recommend people kind of use? Because, you know, as much as it's it's easy to kind of think about this stuff and think, oh, yeah, I would do all of that. But I think when you're in the moment, you've got an emotional family or patient or you, you have to tell them something that's difficult to say, it's really easy to, you know, get nervous and, and lose track of what you wanted to do. So there probably are some 
concrete tools or mnemonics that people could use. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll say that there are a bunch out there, right? There are lots of ways to do this. And you'll talk to some palliative care doctors that do it like I do it and other palliative care doctors that do it differently. And and what I think one of the most important things we talk about in palliative care is we're constantly practicing our language, right? And some things feel good to me that wouldn't feel good to you. And so you use a different phrase, but I'll use my phrase. And so I think one of the big takeaways is, you know, look at these tools, explore them, figure out which one feels like it resonates most with you and use that. I happen to like uh, tools put out by an organization called Vital Talk. And Vital Talk is an organization that focuses on educating providers around how to communicate with patients in the context of serious illness. And they have a number of acronyms that they use to sort of guide those things. There are other things that are Ariadne Labs. There's other compassionate conversation organization. And so this one I like, and I'll talk more about sort of the tools I particularly like with that organization. Uh, and I'll say now that they have a free app um, called Vital Tips, where you can download that app and just sort of look at the list of sort of topics of conversation, pick a topic of conversation, and then it'll give you sort of tools to uh, navigate that conversation. And so I will talk about three of these tools, which are my three favorites. Uh, the first I will say is nurse, which many of you may have heard of. Uh, I think it's being more widely taught in medical schools and residency programs. And this is a tool that Vital Talk developed around how to respond to emotions, how to express, how to communicate with empathy, right? And so N-U-R-S-E. So N is naming the emotion, right? I can see how frustrating this is. U is understanding, expressing understanding. You, you really don't, you, you want to try to avoid saying to patients, I understand what you're going through because really we don't fully understand what they're going through. Well, what I'll often say is something like all of this stuff you're telling me is really helping me to get a better understanding of what you're going through. Something like that. So naming, understanding, respect. So respecting statements like, I just want to say that you've taken amazing care of your mom for the past year and she wouldn't have done as well as she's doing now if it wasn't for you. Uh, S is support, so showing support. I and our team will be here with you throughout this entire hospitalization, and we are available to you anytime you need us. Just talk to the nurse, something that helps them feel supportive. And then E is explore. So you'll hear this a lot in palliative care, this phrase, tell me more, right? So someone says, you know, all I want for my mom is to be happy. Tell me more. What does happy mean for your mom? that sort of thing. So again, you are sort of using these tools. There's no order to use them in. This is something you use to sort of uh, respond when someone is expressing an emotion. And I would encourage everybody to sort of try them. You know, next time you go into a family meeting or a visit, pick one. So yeah, I'm going to try a naming statement in this visit, or I'm going to try a respect statement, see how it feels, see how it lands. And I often say, you know, when I was in medical school and we were doing our foundations of patient care courses. I think some places call it like a doctoring course. That's where we learn how to talk to patients. And I remember I used to sort of want to close my ears and go la 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 because I was like, I know how to talk to people. I don't want you to put things in my head that are going to make it feel like I'm not being genuine when I speak to people. And then when I became a grown-up doctor, I realized that I'm in situations all the time where I don't know what to say. Like, what do you say when someone says something that's really hard or really confusing, or you just told them that they can't get, there, there's no options for chemotherapy and you ask them what they're hoping for. And they say, well, I just want chemotherapy. You know, what do you say? And so I think of these a lot of the times as things you can fall back on to say that help patients, again, feel validated. Uh, and maybe I'll talk a little, I have a couple more sort of tools I use for sort of my, I call them my fallback statements. When I don't know what to say, I sort of turn to those. Um, I'll tell you about the other acronyms first. And at the end, I'll sort of tell you about my fallback. But that's nurse. So again, I mentioned earlier, but if you take away anything away from this, think about that acronym. Think about how you're responding to patients' emotions. Look for those emotions and respond to them. It will help in the building of relationships and the progressive progress of care. Great. And nurse is one of the things that can be found on the Vital apps, That's the right. Vital Tips app. That's right. I think right. that the heading is responding to emotion or maybe expressing empathy. I can't remember, but okay. one of those two things. Great. So again, this is not something that 
you know, you're going to memorize from hearing it this one time. But the nice thing about the app is that it allows you to refer back to it right before you go into a family meeting or when you're struggling and you're thinking, all right, I really need to, you know, think about how to handle this conversation the next time or whatever. You look it up and you have it there. Exactly. Exactly. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it. But trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we're back. And I would encourage all of you to, before you go in the room, when you're sort of making a plan to go in, if there is an expectation that something's going to come up, practice what you're going to say. Practice the actual words you're going to say. You know, I know this, you know, this person's going to get angry when I go in the room. Like, what am I going to say to respond to that anger so that you're ready, uh, as ready as you can be when you go in the room? Yeah, and that's a great example. I, I always tell our students and residents and fellows, you know, anger is one of the really hard, I mean, you know, um, a lot of these emotions are tough, but feeling anger directed at you is really hard. Yes. One of the biggest things I tell them is you can't take it personally. And that seems obvious, but again, one of these things is easy to say, well, of course I wouldn't take it personally, but you know, when you're, someone's yelling at you or calling you a bad doctor huh. uh, or accusing you of killing their, their family member, right? That is really hard, but it, you need to know that this is not like, they don't know you as a person. They clearly don't, they don't even know you as a doctor, really. They just, they're just upset at the situation. And so letting yourself step back from that and not take that personally, I think allows you to then engage with some of these other tools in a compassionate way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally agree. And, you know, we're all human, right? I think to the degree you cannot be defensive in the setting of a patient who's angry at you uh, is really important and wonderful and Sometimes you might be and learning how to forgive yourself too, if that happens, because we're all human, we're doing our best, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Take yeah. us through the next tool. Okay. So again, I had three tools. We did nurse. The next one I'll talk about is around delivering serious news, right? And again, this is something that comes up in the context of your work all the time, right? And so how are we doing that? And the acronym that Vital Talk developed for that is GUIDE, G-U-I-D-E. And so we've talked a little bit about these concepts already, but the G is for get ready. And what that means is sort of gathering the information, making sure you have a good environment to sit down and have that conversation. Maybe it's at the bedside. Maybe it's in a separate room. Do you need water? Do you need tissues? All of those sorts of things. Who's going to be there? Make sure, you know, you ask patient or patient's family, is there anybody else that we need to call or we want to have here? And, you know, that's been a big, um, one of the things that came out of 
of uh, COVID is that oftentimes we're, we have an iPad and we're sort of zooming in people from all over the country to sort of participate in these conversations. And you really want to make sure you have everyone there on the family side and on the consultant side. Does palliative care need to be there? Does oncology need to be there? Does cardiology need to be there? So you're thinking about that. So that's all in getting ready. The U is understand. And so you'll hear a lot in sort of how to have conversations with patients and families that one of the first things we always do is we sort of assess the understanding of the patient. So we know where, what our starting point is or better informed about how to sort of go forward from there. And the one thing I'll say is try not to use the word understanding. Try not to ask for patients and families understanding because that can often feel like a quiz. So say things like, what have you heard from the doctors that have talked to you so far? Or what, have your, what is your sense of what's, what's going on with your loved one or what's going on with your health? Uh, so you can get a sense of what's going on. So uh, again, getting ready, understand, inform. Uh, and this is an important part. And so again, I'm just going to highlight asking permission. So before you inform, you ask permission if it's okay to share what you know once you've got a sense of what they know. And then when you're informing, you're using clear, non-jargony, short statements, right? Oftentimes we talk in palliative care, and again, this is a concept through vital talk about a headline, right? So what is your headline? What is the headline that you're going to provide about this person's condition? And it might be something like, unfortunately, the CT scan showed that your cancer is spread and we don't have chemotherapy to treat it. Something like that. It's clear, short. And after that, the next is D, G-U-I-D, and that's deepen your connection. So after you deliver something like that, you're going to expect emotion, right? And so that's when you go into your nurse statements and you respond with empathy and you spend some time there to really address whatever is coming up. And I will say sometimes that's it, right? Sometimes you got to stop there because it's too much and a patient or a family member needs time to sort of process and talk to their loved ones and sort of go from there. Uh, and if you can progress and sometimes families will want to do that, the E is equip, right? So now that we've shared this, can we talk about sort of what next steps might look like? Uh, where we go from here, what tests we might want to get or how we think about going forward. And sometimes that works too. So that's guide uh, and, and, and a way you can think about delivering serious news. Yeah, I think those are all really, really useful. For the understand that you, you know, you're trying to understand what they already know. I, I agree with you. I think you want to be very careful not to make them feel like you're quizzing them, mm -hmm. um, which may seem silly, but I think it's really easy, again, when you're feeling like you don't know anything about what's going on, that any kind of question like that. I also find that when you ask people, you know, who are, if you say to people, are you family, right? You're trying to figure out who somebody is, who's in the room. You say, are you family? That sometimes they can feel like you're challenging their right to mm -hmm. be there. Mm -hmm. So I never ask, are you family? I say, you know, we love to have everybody here who can support our patients, friends, family, neighbors, pastors, you know, anybody. Um, how do you know? so-and-so, right? Yep. And then they feel like yeah, it doesn't matter, right? Anything is welcome. Yeah. Yeah. I also, um, I think that uh, one thing, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, that I often will do is with the trying to figure out what they know without making them feel quizzed, I'll put it on kind of us, you know, I'll say, you know, we don't always do a great job with keeping families up to date on what we know. So I'm curious what we've told you so far, you know, could you just keep updating me on what you've, what we've let you know. And then it's like, oh, this is our bad, right? We don't always do this right. So that's why I'm asking as opposed to, hey, I, I want to know what you know. Yeah, I would say that's a totally fine way to do it. I would say just to be careful around sort of compromising any confidence they have in you as the team and the other providers. I think, you know, the way you said it, I think is great. You know, we're not always good keeping up at what's been told to you and what's not been told to you. And so if you could tell us what you've heard, that would be great. I think that makes that's that's a, that's a great way to say it. Great. And then do you want to just give it a, with the um, asking permission when you're ready to inform? Yeah. Just maybe say how you say it or one, one sure. way to say it. Sure. So after somebody shares sort of what they've heard or what they know. I often say, you know, thanks so much for saying all that. That's really helped me get a better sense of, of what you've been told and what's going on. Would it be okay with you if I shared what I know and what I've heard from the providers with you? Yeah. Great. Yeah. All right. So that's guide. So now we've done nurse and guide. What's the next one? Okay. The next one, again, I think is highly valuable in the ICU setting. And it's probably the tool that I use the most of any of these tools, other than nurse, because you're sort of sprinkling these nurse statements everywhere is remap. Okay. And so this is for a late stage goals of care conversation, right? Maybe someone's had heart disease for a very long time and now they're in the ICU on pressors 
and it doesn't look like they're going to get off, right? Or they've had cancer for a long time. They like have not – the cancer progressed through sort of their last option for chemotherapy. They were going to get on a clinical trial. Now they're in the hospital, and they can't get on the clinical trial anymore. So things are different, and it's sort of – Another goals of care conversation, hopefully one has been had prior in sort of the early stages, so you know how people want to progress through their illness, and now we're facing harder decisions, uh, and we're having conversations around that. And so that is REMAP. Uh, and so the R in REMAP is reframe, okay? So you're really reframing the situation. Uh, and again, this is after sort of you introduce things and you assessed understanding and all that sort of stuff. You... Uh, Ask permission to sort of share your uh, insight or updates about what you know, and that's when you provide a headline. Again, a short, non-jargony statement about the new reality that is there. Um, and Vital Talk actually tested a, a lot of language with patients, and one of the things that, or one of the statements that patients responded well to, was specifically the words, "We're in a different place now." Right? And so saying those words, try those words, see if it fits. And again, that's not giving any clear information, but it is a way to sort of have that headline be something you can say before you provide information that sort of shifts that energy in that person to be in a place where they're going to hear news about the change. So reframe where you provide a headline. Um, and again, I just can't stress enough to practice these headlines before you go in the room. Practice what you're going to say. Often you're using the word, you know, dying in that statement um, and practice that because that's a hard thing to say. So then you're going to expect emotion. That's the E and respond to that emotion in ways we've already talked about. And again, I'll say again, sometimes that's it. Sometimes you respond to that emotion and give people space and come back later. If you can continue the conversation, the M and remap again, R E M is map values. So now we have this new information. What's most important to you? And this is a place where I spend some time. So they say, you know, well, I just really don't want to have pain as I get closer to the end of my life. And thank you so much for letting us know that. What else? Another thing, what else? And I really attempt to exhaust those things. I really want to get a sense of what's important to someone in the context of their new, their new reality so we can help guide their care um, to the degree that we can towards something that, that can uh, benefit them. So that's mapping values and then align. And this is sort of uh, saying back to the patient and family what you've heard. Um, and one of the people at Vital Talk talks about sort of reflective statements, right? And there's sort of reflective statements 101 and reflective statements 201. And reflective statements 101 is sort of parroting, right? So if someone says, you know, I'm just really scared of what's next for me, and you can say back to them, I hear that you're really scared of what's next for you. And that's okay. You can do that. And that's, again, that's a, an, a fallback thing that you can use to say if you don't want to say or you want to express emotion and, and you feel like that could be helpful, that's okay. But what's often better is these reflective statements 201, where you're sort of hearing that statement, you're taking information from other statements that have made and maybe making an inference or taking a jump and saying, I'm hearing that you're really scared about not seeing your kid graduate from high school. And that was a dream of yours. Uh, something that gives them back what they said, but expands it and lets them know that you're really hearing them. Uh, and so aligning, what I'm hearing you say is X. And so you're spending some time helping them feel heard. And then after that, asking permission, would it be okay with you if I talked about what steps we might take to help you get towards these things that you're expressing are important to you? And that's the plan. And I will say that you know, often people go into rooms and have these conversations and don't like a prescriptive uh, map, right, that, that it feels inorganic. But I will say that in all of my goals of care conversations and family meetings, this map works. It has worked almost every time. And again, sometimes you deviate here and there, but this progressing through a conversation in this way helps you get through it, get the information you need, and tends to feel like it's supporting families and patients in the way that you want them to feel supported. Yeah. And, you know, I think people don't always realize it when they're the ones in the meeting, meaning the providers in the meeting, but often these meetings don't go as well as they could. So I think we, yeah. we don't always realize that, 
but I think having some tools can really make a difference. Let me ask you with remap. Um, and did we get to, what was the P? Did we do the P? Plan. Yeah. Okay. Um, but let me ask you uh, a couple of things. So one is the role of silence. And I think, you know, you were saying that with, when you're exploring and you're saying to them, what's important to you, what else, right? If you say what else, nothing. Okay. Right. If you, if you don't give them, if you don't let there be silence and give them time, you are not going to exhaust their thoughts because not everyone is going to be comfortable or ready to answer your question in the one millisecond we usually leave after we ask a question before we move on. So do you agree that I, you really, and this is not easy. It's not easy for human beings to be comfortable with silence. So I always tell people, you really have to also practice that. And whether that's what I try to do, which is count slowly to a number like eight in my head after I've asked a question and, and just see if anybody has something to say, or you have another technique. But I think if you don't have something like that, you're never going to give people enough time. Absolutely. I love that. We haven't talked about silence at all. And silence is a huge tool that we're using all the time, giving space for that, right? Again, oftentimes before you are providing a nurse statement, right, you just dropped a really hard, so you just you just gave somebody really, really hard news and you can see them emotionally reacting to that. Oftentimes I will just sit there, you know, I will sit there for a very long time until the patient says something. And then I respond to that. But that's often a moment where silence can be very effective to honor that space, to give them that space to experience whatever they need to experience. And your tool sounds like a great one, counting in your head if you need to. Uh, I think that other people probably do it different ways and that's fine too. But silence, yes, is, a, is an amazing tool that, that we use all the time. And I mentioned that I was going to talk about a couple more sort of fallback things and, and silence comes into play here. And so, uh, the, the big ones that I use that I will, that are also vital talk inspired is, is I wish statements, right? So if somebody says something, if you just explain something that, you know, can no longer happen and the person asks for that thing or wants that thing, you can say, I wish you could get on the clinical trial. And I think that a lot of people's inclination, a lot of providers' inclinations is to then say, but unfortunately you can't because blah, 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 blah. And what I would encourage is just wish. Just wish with your patient. Just wish with the family. And it's implied that, you know, that's not the direction that things can go. And it also allows you to align with them and help them to help them feel like they have an advocate and they have someone that's supporting them in that. And so when you don't know what to say, I wish is a great place to go. And the other is I hope. I hope and I worry, right? So someone really wants to live for three more months to get to a wedding, right? And that seems very unlikely when someone's in the hospital and on pressers and can't get off. And it's always okay to hope with someone, right? It's always okay to hope with them. I hope that you get out of this hospital and you get to that wedding. And I worry that your health is in a place now or you won't be able to leave the ICU. And if that's the case, I wonder if we could talk about what we might be able to do now to support you best. You know, uh, it often comes up in the setting of miracles, right? People are often hoping for miracles. You can hope with a person for a miracle, right? Well, I believe in God and I believe a miracle is going to come and my dad is going to wake up. I hope so. I hope that that happens. Stop, right? After I hope, you can stop and leave silence. After I wish, you can stop and leave silence. You don't need to say but, et cetera, et cetera. But is a word that we try not to use a lot of palliative care because it sort of negates the thing you said before. We try to say and whenever we can. That tends to be hard for some people. Uh, so I think silence is another perfect option there. And if you practice that, you'll notice that that's hard. It's hard to stop talking, but it's important. Yeah. So let's use that example, the, the family member who says, you know, I, I think a miracle is going to happen and he will wake up, even though you're telling me he's not going to wake up. And you say, you know, I guess, how do you decide between, or are they equally valid to say one thing you could say is, I hope so. I hope that can happen. And then just leave it versus I hope that can happen. And I worry that mm -hmm. it won't. Yeah. 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 And oftentimes that's, it's helpful to talk to family members in those settings often about sort of hypotheticals, right? You know, we both hope that he wakes up. And just so we can prepare for every possibility, if he doesn't wake up, you know, what do you think he would want? What would he want if we knew that he wasn't going to wake up? 
you know, to try to get a sense, try to get that patient's perspective and try to move that conversation forward. And that's not always going to work. Sometimes people are going to say, oh, he will wake up. You know, I know he will. We'll have a miracle and he'll wake up. And again, I think that often our job is to make sure that we feel like we are giving all of the information we have to the patient or to the family member. And if we feel confident that that's the case, then we support them. You know, um, I think that there's often, this often comes up around provider distress that goals of care conversations are happening and they're not progressing. And goals are clear, right? Somebody knows they can want continued life-prolonging interventions. They want the trach, they want the peg, they want all these things, and that's been totally clear, but providers are very distressed by that because it doesn't feel like that's, you know, moving the patient in the direction that they think the patient should be moving in. And there are cases where it is clear that those interventions would only cause harm and that providers say, you know, we're not going to do these things. And that is the case sometimes. And sometimes it's more ambiguous. And what I would encourage folks to pay attention to is the inclination to have lots of goals of care conversations, right? To want to kind of do it every day. That can be really fatiguing for patients and families. It can, you know, damage the trust. Uh, and so I think that what I often encourage teams to do is, you know, if goals are clear, schedule a check-in, right? Schedule a check-in once a week, once every, you know, week and a half, whatever it is at a cadence that makes sense. So it's predictable and not to sort of go in there every day to reassess goals that have made, been made clear because, because of the distress, which is legit and legitimate. I mean, uh, that the providers are feeling. Yeah. Let me go back to the headlines because I think those are so important and you mentioned them and you mentioned sometimes your headline is going to include really hard things to say, like the word dying, for example. Can you give a couple examples of headlines, maybe especially ones that might include that word dying? Yeah. So again, for a headline, you want to think about short. You want to think about no medical jargon. You want to think about delivering information and delivering the implication of that information, right? So uh, unfortunately... On the CT scan, it showed your cancer has spread to your lungs. And because of that, you're no longer eligible for the clinical trial. Done. All of these teams have worked so hard with you to help get your loved one better. Unfortunately, we know now that she's dying. Yeah. I mean, those those statements, I think, are, are so powerful and important. And I find that if you don't, like you said, if you don't plan that beforehand, yes. Now, maybe for someone who's done this a lot, maybe that's less of a danger. But I, I see that for people who are doing this for the first time, maybe the, as you're, maybe you're an ICU fellow who's going to run a family meeting for the first time, and you go into this meeting, and the kind of point is to tell them that their loved one is dying. And I've seen people not do it, you know, despite the fact that that was the whole point. Yeah. Because it's so hard to do. We do this sometimes in sim simulation. We do it sometimes in just kind of um, discussions that aren't real, just kind of prepare, you know, talking with medical students, for example, as you and I have done about these things. And still, even when it isn't real, people are reluctant to say it. So you can imagine that with a real patient who's really dying in a real family, it's incredibly hard. So if you don't practice this beforehand, uh, it's going to be so hard that you might not do it at all. Absolutely. It's really hard. It's really hard to tell people devastating news, right? And, you know, I think people in palliative care, myself included, you know, I, you know, I went into palliative care because of being able to sit in those spaces, right? In these, in, in, I had a mentor of mine years ago, Susan Barber, who's one of the palliative care nurses at UCSF who helped sort of start and build the service. We had this exercise where everyone went around and said one word that, encapsulated what palliative care meant to them. I don't actually remember what the word I said, but the word that she said, which resonated so much with me was real, right? You're sitting in these spaces and you're just sitting in the truth of the moment. You didn't cause the thing to happen, but it is happening. And you're there to sort of bear witness and sit in that suffering with those, those people and recognizing that your job is to be there to support them in this reality and not saying it's easy, but it can be quite profound to be there in those spaces to support people. Um, and so knowing that giving them the true information about what's happening uh, is really, you know, supporting them and honoring them uh, as you sort of provide their care. Yeah. So 
You've mentioned a couple of things to avoid, for example, uh, saying to patients, you know, what do you understand? Because that can feel like you're quizzing them, um, you know, uh, using the word but, if you can avoid it. So there's some things to avoid. Are there other things you, you kind of common mistakes you see maybe people who aren't well-trained in this do or things you would recommend, you know, really try not to do X, Y, or Z? Yeah. So yeah, those are definitely a few of the things I think again, sort of repeat goals of care conversations all the time is another one of those things, avoiding medical jargon whenever you can. Uh, I think that one thing that I see missed all the time is the inclusion of the non-physicians in the meetings, right? So there's often cases where the nurse, maybe there's been a social worker that's been visiting with this patient for weeks and weeks, a chaplain that's been visiting with this patient for weeks and weeks, making sure that you're thinking about getting those people in the room who know that patient and know that family really well and can sort of provide context and provide support in ways that you might not be able to. And so not forgetting to include other members of the team in those conversations to help support those patients and families. So remembering to do that. Uh, another thing that I often bring up is thinking about your interpreters. And so I think that interpreters are often sort of, you know, it's in-person interpreters are happening less and less now. It's great when you can have them. Oftentimes someone's rolling an iPad into a room, sitting down and just calling the interpreter and getting started. And I think remembering that often that interpreter is the one that's delivering this news to this patient or family member. Uh, and, you know, you're saying it, but then they're the ones that are saying it in a way that the patients can understand. And that can be hard, right? And so I would encourage everybody to include the interpreter, whether on video or in person, in sort of that pre-meeting as you're making a plan so they're prepared to know what they're going to say to that family. And then include them in the debrief after to check in and see how they're doing uh, because, uh, you know, their role is quite important and they're affected just like everyone else is. And I think that's often forgotten. And uh, I think those are sort of the main things that I think about wanting to avoid. Great. I think those are really important ones. Um, you know, I think we've covered a lot of really important stuff, and I, I don't want to overwhelm people. I think that, you know, the idea here, and certainly as we, as you have done, as we know, you one can do an entire year focused only on this. And so the, the goal, and I think we've really done done it well here, or you have done it very well, Tim, is to give people an idea of some tools they can use when they're doing what you called kind of primary palliative care, right? So they're, they're maybe giving the initial attempts at this before maybe, or even in conjunction with, but, you know, probably more commonly before they've decided to call a palliative care consult. And these are really great. You've given us some mnemonics, uh, an app, some things to avoid, some things to really try to do, some backup phrases, um, and some great advice. Is there anything else before we move on that you want to um, mention? I think one more thing to mention that, may come up is, you know, we talked about the definition of palliative care and sort of the elevator pitch for palliative care. But when you're sort of talking to your patients about palliative care, I just thought I'd share what I say when I'm introducing palliative care to patients. And again, you'll find, you know, 50 different ways that people do this uh, just to help you sort of describe palliative care if you're thinking about getting them involved. And so what I usually say to patients and families is our role in palliative care, specifically in the hospital setting, is to do two main things. One of those things is to address any distressing symptom. And I often highlight the symptom that they might have, whether it's pain, nausea, constipation, anxiety, depression. We're here to help with all of those things. And the other main thing we do is we want to make sure that we and all the other providers here are caring for you in the way you want to be cared for. People want different things from their care, and we want to learn about your goals and your values and make sure we're honoring those things as we care for you. So we serve sort of advocates for you and your family. And so those are the things I say and can be a very helpful way to describe palliative care when you're talking to patients and families about it. Uh, I would avoid using end of life, death and dying, those sorts of things when you're talking about bringing palliative care in and letting palliative care sort of explain more about what they do. The last piece I'll say about language is, you know, it's still uh, widely used when we're talking about sort of extubating someone at the end of their life, you know, things like withdrawing care. Um, withdrawing support, those sorts of things, I would say try to avoid saying those things. You know, we are, what I often say is we're going to change the focus of care. You know, we have been focusing on all of these life-prolonging interventions, and now our care is going to be focused on making sure your loved one is comfortable and supported, and that's what we're going to focus on. So think about saying changing the focus of care versus withdrawing anything. I like that a lot. 
we have a one attending here who is known for really not liking the phrase withdrawing care um, because she says and accurately, we never stop caring. Right. Um, but instead she recommends using withdrawal support. And I like your phrase much better, which is, you know, we also aren't going to stop supporting them. Right. So that's not accurate either. Right. It's really, we're just changing the focus. I really like that. I, I think I will start, I will steal that one is changing the focus of the care we're providing. Yeah. Well, Tim, this has been a, a really great discussion. I think people really get a lot out of it. Let's turn to a much lighter topic now of <laughs> recommendations or random recommendations that we make to the audience. Do you have um, a couple of things uh, that you would recommend people check out? I do. I have two things to recommend. <clears throat> the first is actually another podcast, which is called The Nocturnists. And The Nocturnists started as a live storytelling event where healthcare providers would sort of, there would be a theme and healthcare providers would tell stories of their experiences on a stage and, uh, and it evolved into a podcast that exists now, uh, which is uh, healthcare providers telling stories about their experiences in healthcare. And it really just sort of taps into the humanity of medicine. And I can't recommend it enough uh, to listen to the episodes uh, of, of The Nocturnists. Awesome. So the podcast, The Nocturnists, and uh, what's the second one? So the last thing is a little, a little bit different, which is called a Yodo player. I don't know if anybody's heard of this, but I spent a lot of time sort of for, I've, I have a few kids and I look for ways for them to listen to music without a screen. <clears throat> and there's this thing called a Yodo player, which is sort of like a new version of a CD player where you can get cards and you can put music on the cards, you can put stories on the cards, and you put the cards in this little machine and it plays whatever's on the card and the kids love it. It's a really amazing tool. There's also a podcast on the machine so the kids can wake up in the morning and press a button on their little machine. And there is a Yodo daily podcast where they interview kids from all over the world to talk about their country and what sort of food they eat in their country and what they do for fun in their country. And so the kids are often coming out of the rooms being like, did you know that in Denmark people swim in the winter? Those sorts of things. And so uh, we have loved that. I recommend trying it out, especially folks with kids. And this is Y-O-D-O. Y-O-T-O. Y-O-T-O. Yep. Yoto. Okay. I uh, can't believe that I'm learning about this when I'm interviewing on podcast <laughs> and not from you recommending it for me and my children. Um, so I will be checking that out for sure. Um, well, that's great. I will recommend um, my my wife and actually two older daughters and I have now we're about halfway through the second season of For All Mankind, which, um, if you aren't aware, is a show on, I believe it's Apple TV Plus, And it is really fun. It's the premise of the show is that the Soviet Union beat the United States to landing the first person, the first man on the moon. And then everything else kind of comes subsequent to that. And it changes history in really interesting ways. So, for example, uh, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, so if you don't want any spoilers, it's not a major spoiler, it's a little spoiler. If you don't want any spoilers, skip ahead or just stop listening now. But um, an example is that um, because the Soviets landed first person on the moon, um, this causes Senator Ted Kennedy, who was going to have a party in Chippequiddick, to come back early instead of having that party to hold hearings. And as you may know, in history, he did have a party at Chippequiddick where he was driving a woman home, got in a car accident, she died. And the controversy over that actually is what prevented him from running for president. Uh, but in the show, because he doesn't ever have that party because he comes home early to have hearings about how the Soviet Union beat us in landing a man on the moon, he doesn't have the controversy. So he does, in fact, become president. And so there's all these interesting ins and outs. Um, and uh, the show is well done and interesting. So check it out uh, for all mankind. All right, Tim, great having you on the show. Thanks so much for doing it. Thanks so much, Ed. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit, and we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. 
Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.